Just a quick update before we begin. Thanks to Audible, History of the Marine Corps can now give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its tens of thousands of selections, and I use Audible for myself for some of the reference material we use on the show. I love audiobooks. For one, I'm a crayon eater, so having someone read the book to me is a lot easier. But it also allows me to rewind and listen to segments, and I can listen while I'm doing things around the house. In the spirit of transparency, History of the Marine Corps receives a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me. Every recommendation is a book I have personally read or listened to and enjoyed. I'll include my suggestion at the end of the episode, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible. And whether you decide to continue your membership, this book is yours to keep. Forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marine history for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode 71 of History of the Marine Corps, the Spanish-American War. Our last episode discussed a few expeditions to South America, including the Panama Canal. We explored a couple of significant changes to the Marine Corps, including the appointment of John Philip Sousa as the leader of the Marine Band and the formal adoption of the Marine Corps motto. This episode digs into the Spanish-American War. This was a short war, and we will discuss the Marines' involvement in one episode. However, there were some important milestones during this time frame. We'll discuss a couple of battles, some Marine Corps changes, and set the change for the next couple of episodes leading to World War I. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. As the 1800s came to an end, tensions with Spain started to escalate. The Marine Corps had relatively little change in their size before the war with Spain. But the decade after the war, the strength would grow over 160%, from around 3,500 men to 9,400. These Marines played a considerable role during this time. Marines saw actions from Cuba, to China. They provided support to multiple new naval vessels constructed by the United States, and a battalion of Marines conducted the first amphibious landing in Cuba and established a naval base for the Atlantic Fleet, which was commanded by Rear Admiral W.P. Sampson. Marines also played a significant role resisting the insurrection in the Philippines and the expedition in Peking, China. For every conflict before the Spanish-American War, the United States had to rush and build a new naval fleet, but not this time. The U.S. began to modernize its maritime fleet 15 years before the war with Spain broke out, and when the conflict started, they were in a decent state for naval warfare. But despite the Navy's increasing size and strength, the Marine Corps didn't grow with the Navy until 1896 when the Corps saw an increase of 500 men. Although the authorized strength of the Corps increased, 
the actual strength didn't improve too much. When the war broke out in 1898, the Marine Corps had 77 officers and 2,900 enlisted. Most of these Marines were spread out amongst 15 different shore stations and 35 naval vessels. Tensions started to rise between Spain and the United States about three years before war was officially declared. Spain was brutally repressive in addressing a rebellion with Cuba, but the reason U.S. citizens supported a war with Spain was arguably encouraged by the media. Multiple sensational newspapers started to engage in yellow journalism. Yellow journalism is the original fake news. The media used outrageous headlines to bring in readers and published exaggerated stories for the sake of profits. They used the instability between the Spanish imperialists and Cuban revolutionaries to bring in readers. William Randolph Hearst and Joseph Pulitzer took advantage of the suffering in Cuba to sell newspapers. On February 15, 1898, the USS Maine arrived in Havana Harbor to ensure American citizens in Cuba were safe. When the ship was pulling into port, it suffered a massive explosion, killing 260 out of the 355 on board. Amongst the dead were 28 Marines. One of the surviving Marines was Private William Anthony. Even though there was a massive explosion, the ship filling with smoke, no light below deck and the ship quickly sinking, Private Anthony made his way below deck to Captain Sigsby. He reported the conditions of the ship and escorted Sigsby back to the quarterdeck. The Marine Corps and the Navy highly commended Anthony's actions, and he came back as a national hero. But the ship was destroyed. And although the cause of the explosion was unknown, the public assumed it was the Spanish who attacked. The Office of the Historian reports, quote, Sober observers and an initial report by the colonial government of Cuba concluded that the explosion had occurred on board, but Hearst and Pulitzer, who had for several years been selling papers by fanning anti-Spanish public opinion in the United States, published rumors of plots to sink the ship. Unquote. Most historians would agree that yellow journalism wasn't the cause of the war. From a high-level view, I would agree with this sentiment. The media didn't create policy, and Spain was treating Cubans horrendously but it's hard to deny that the media didn't play a role in pushing the country in that direction. Hearst was even quoted as saying, quote, You furnish the pictures, I'll provide the war. Unquote. A few months before the United States declared war, the Navy began to prepare. The U.S. Navy built new ships and converted older vessels into warships. Before war was declared, Commodore George Dewey received orders to take a naval squadron to the Philippines. Manila Bay housed most of the Spanish fleet. The Navy sent a second fleet to Key West to prepare for a landing on Cuba. On April 21, 1898, the U.S. officially declared war on Spain. From a strategic perspective, the U.S. prepared well for this conflict. On May 4th, the strength of the Marine Corps had a temporary increase of 24 officers 
and 1,640 enlisted. The Marine Corps also received orders to assemble every available Marine on the east coast of the United States and build a battalion for service in Cuba. Within a few days of receiving orders, 23 officers and 623 enlisted were organized into five rifle companies and an artillery company led by Lieutenant Colonel Robert W. Huntington. While Marines were being assembled in the U.S., the Asiatic Squadron was already nearing its target. On April 30th, nine days after the war was declared, Commodore Dewey arrived at Luzon, Philippines. Dewey waited until nightfall, extinguished all lights on each ship, and used the cover of darkness to sneak into Manila Bay. At 5.40 in the morning on May 1st, the U.S. fleet was in position. Dewey turned to the captain of the Olympia and stated, quote, You may fire when ready, Gridley. Unquote. The U.S. fleet opened up on the Spanish fleet. Spain responded with very little defense. The Battle of Manila Bay was disastrous for Spain. Two hours after the first shot was fired, the U.S. Navy destroyed the Spanish fleet. Six out of the seven U.S. naval vessels contained Marines, and most of them operated the secondary batteries during the fight. Although this battle was short, it was catastrophic for the Spanish. 381 Spanish troops were killed and wounded. The U.S. had eight wounded and one dead, but that death was due to heat exhaustion. The Spanish authorities surrendered to Dewey the next day. On May 3rd, a detachment of Marines from the USS Baltimore, commanded by First Lieutenant Dion Williams, landed, took control, and raised the American flag. Marines immediately set up defenses and turned this station into a valuable naval base for the rest of the war. Dewey kept most of his fleet in the area and patiently waited for additional ships to arrive. The extra support included expeditionary forces that were needed to advance on the remaining Spaniards in Manila. Spain still had about 13,000 troops garrisoned in Manila. However, they faced an insurrection from the Filipinos. American troops didn't arrive until July, when 2,000 U.S. troops landed and occupied Manila, but Filipino insurgents grew significantly by their arrival. The U.S. didn't recognize the insurgents as a legitimate authority, and the situation became complicated. The insurgents demanded to take control of Manila, but Dewey and the U.S. Army commander prevented the Filipinos from taking over. This resistance resulted in the insurgents beginning to target the United States. Marines would play a big part in this situation, which we will discuss in future episodes. But back in the U.S., the Navy received intelligence that a few of the remaining Spanish fleet left Spain and they were headed to an unknown location. Everyone was speculating where the Spanish were sailing. The Navy sent ships to Puerto Rico to head off the ships, but the Spanish fleet never showed up. There were reports that a Spanish patrol ship was spotted off the north coast of South America. But the fleet never showed up and went quiet for a while. The enemy squadron was finally spotted inside a harbor in Santiago. 
the U.S. immediately acted and created a blockade off Santiago Harbor. On June 3rd, the United States attempted to stop the enemy from escaping by sinking the USS Merrimack at the narrowest part of the channel, creating a more permanent obstacle for Spain. U.S. Admiral Sampson began a bombardment of the defensive forts. The Navy fired 8,060 rounds during this battle, with 123 hits. Every one of the Spanish ships was either sunk or incapacitated. The Spanish had 470 casualties compared to the U.S. one injured and one dead. The U.S. was doing well with this blockade, but Samson required a more permanent base for his fleet. He chose Guantanamo Bay, which was about 40 miles from Santiago Harbor. As far as troop performance was concerned, they were doing great. Casualty rates were low, territory was being seized, and significant progress was made. However, none of this was due to the competency of the U.S. War Department. Their main job was to plan for war, but they didn't have mobilization plans. They didn't even have a map of Cuba for the troops, which is insane to me. Huntington's Battalion of Marines has been training specifically for the scenario at Key West for more than a month. And on June 7th, the Marines gathered on the USS Panther, probably one of the coolest names for a naval ship, and headed for Cuba. To prepare for the Marines' landing, the USS St. Louis and the Yankee arrived in Guantanamo Bay two days prior and bombarded a Spanish blockhouse at the inner end of the channel leading to the harbor. On June 10th, a detachment of 40 Marines from the Oregon and 20 Marines from the Marblehead landed. Their mission was to support reconnaissance of the area. The Panther arrived at Guantanamo Bay on June 10th at 1 in the afternoon. As soon as the ship arrived, it began to dispatch Marines to shore. By the end of the day, four companies of Marines with plenty of supplies were ashore. During the Spanish-American War, yellow fever was rampant. Multiple senior military officials signed a letter called the Round Robin and sent it to the War Department and the United States President. The letter stated that if the U.S. didn't remove troops from the area, there was a significant risk of catching yellow fever. Teddy Roosevelt leaked this letter to the press, which caused a lot of commotion. To solve the issue, the U.S. sent sick troops to Montauk, New York to quarantine, but Montauk didn't have the resources to support the sick troops. 29,000 men were sent to Montauk, but the camp couldn't provide the basic services or proper medical care for the sick, and most troops just laid around on beaches, sick with yellow fever. The decision to send troops to an area lacking basic resources became a big scandal for the United States. The U.S. needed men to replace the troops sick with yellow fever, so they created units called the Immuned. They raised units consisting of colored troops and assumed that this unit was immune from tropical diseases. To paint a picture of how bad yellow fever was to U.S. troops during the Spanish-American War, 771 American troops died from the disease, compared to the 1,500 casualties in combat. Looking back into history, 
Dying from diseases seems like an unavoidable risk to any war. However, the Marines were the exception. We do a lot in the Marine Corps that doesn't make much sense on the surface. Every week, usually on a Thursday, we have a field day. Sounds fun, but it involves cleaning every inch of our barracks. The trope you hear of someone checking the cleanliness with a white glove isn't fictional. Each week, every inch of our barracks was scrutinized for cleanliness. Inspectors would check behind dressers, inside vents, behind toilets, under carpets, windowsills, the bottom of shoes. Every hidden crevice that could house dirt was checked. Same thing with uniform inspections. We periodically had inspections called junk on the bunk where all of your required uniform inventory was laid out and inspected for cleanliness and functionality. Troop inspections were also held every week, and Marines would be inspected for haircuts, the cleanliness of their fingernails, proper shaves, and a bunch of other factors. Inspections were a hassle, and just about every Marine hated it, but it wasn't without purpose. During the Spanish-American War, many troops died from yellow fever, but the Marines thrived. The Marine battalion sent to Cuba was appropriately dressed for the environment. They had tropical uniforms made from cotton, not wool, and practiced rigorous sanitation. As a result, Marines lost zero men due to disease, and their sick rate never exceeded 2%. Even for today, that rate is outstanding. Out of everyone listening to this podcast, I'm willing to bet that more than 2% are sick right now. The first 24 hours Marines were on shore, the main challenge they faced was the heat. Combined with swarms of mosquitoes, progress was strenuous. The Spanish took advantage of the uncomfortable situation and on the second day attacked one of the outposts, killing two Marines on patrol. At one in the morning, the Spanish launched a more determined attack and flanked the Marines. But the Marines managed to hold them off. The next morning, Delta Company, under First Lieutenant Neville, had a brutal attack just before being relieved. Sergeant H.C. Smith was killed, and three other Marines were wounded. These attacks exposed weaknesses in the Marines' defenses, which were reinforced immediately. The Marines moved their camp on the 12th to lower ground, and the hills surrounding their camps were turned into defensive positions. The Spaniards continued their attack, but they weren't as destructive due to the change in the line of defense. That following night, Spain launched an attack that killed Sergeant Major Henry Good. The constant attacks helped the Marines understand the strategy and the strength of Spain. Reconnaissance determined that there were about 500 to 800 Spanish troops in the area, a few hundred guerrillas that were supporting them, and probably a few thousand guerrillas surrounding Guantanamo. American troops needed a strategy to stop the frequent attacks. They decided to focus on Cusco Well. Cusco was important because it was the only water supply in the immediate area. The well was six miles southwest of the Marines' camp. Huntington's plan was to take the offensive, disperse the Spaniards, and cut off their water supply. To help with this attack, 70 Cubans under Colonel Tomas supported the Marines. On the morning of June 14th, 
Charlie and Delta Company, along with 50 Cubans, began their trek through the hills to attack the Spaniards at Cusco Well. Some of the inexperienced Marines had a hard time acclimating to the heat, and many had to leave the attack. They were placed on the USS Dolphin and supported the assault by operating the ship's secondary guns. Marine Captain Elliot, who would become the future Commandant of the Marine Corps, led the expedition. When they were three miles from their target, Elliot sent Charlie Company, commanded by First Lieutenant Lucas, and about half of the Cubans to the enemy's left flank. The Spanish saw the troop movement and retreated, spreading the word to the Spanish troops near the well. The Marines and Cuban forces occupied a hill near their target, but the Spaniards unleashed heavy fire at the approaching forces. U.S. troops were still quite far from their target, but the constant fire from Spanish troops halted their movement for a while. As soon as the sound of gunfire was heard, Marine Lieutenant Magill, who was still at the Marine outpost, immediately sent in reinforcements. He and 50 Marines quickly headed towards the sound of gunfire. First Lieutenant Mahoney joined these forces as well. The Marines began a long-range rifle firefight against the Spanish. Marines sent a signal to the Dolphin requesting support, and the Navy immediately began to shell the enemy position. Unfortunately, they misunderstood the intended target. The shells fell on Lieutenant McGill's platoon, forcing him to find cover. Fortunately, no Marines were killed by the Navy bombardment, but the shell fire caused the Spanish to flee which benefited the Marines. Stopping the friendly fire can be accredited to one Marine, Sergeant John H. Quick. When the Dolphin began its bombardment, Sergeant Quick heroically exposed himself to the naval gunfire and placed himself in plain sight of the enemy and the U.S. Navy. He signaled for the fire to stop. His actions saved the lives of a lot of Marines. The remaining 500 troops would retreat, taking with them one U.S. officer and 17 privates as prisoner. Bravo Company advanced towards the Spanish location at around 3.15 in the afternoon, and they destroyed Cusco well. The enemy injured only one Marine during this engagement. The number of Spanish casualties during this conflict varies from 5 to 210. Kind of a big range there. The Marines did a phenomenal job fighting the Spanish, so much so that the retreating Spaniards estimated that 10,000 Americans were attacking them. Although Spanish troops remained in the vicinity of the Marines, they didn't attack the Americans again. The Marine Battalion would leave camp on August 5th and board the Resolute, which was specifically fitted as a Marine transport vessel. The Marines sailed for the Isle of Pines. On their way, they passed Manzanilla, and naval captain Goodrich ordered the capture of the port. Goodrich demanded the Spanish surrender, which they refused. In response, the U.S. Navy opened fire on the town, and the Marines prepared to land. On August 13th, the Navy began preparing landing crafts for the Marines. But just as they were about to board, a message was received stating that Spain and the United States established a peace protocol and an armistice was declared. 
the Spanish commander sent out a message to the U.S. surrendering the city. The Isle of Pines was abandoned, and Huntington's battalion was sent north. They arrived in Portsmouth, New Hampshire on August 26th and were stationed on CV Island in the Navy Yard. The Marines would stay there until the end of September. Spain and the United States negotiated treaty terms for two months. The Treaty of Paris was officially signed on December 10th, 1898. Under the treaty, the United States gained control of Spain's colonies in the Philippines, Guam, and Puerto Rico. Cuba became a U.S. protectorate. This entire war lasted less than four months. During the Spanish-American War, the Marines had seven killed in action and 21 wounded in action. John Hay, who was the U.S. ambassador to the United Kingdom, wrote a letter to Teddy Roosevelt and called this a, quote, splendid little war, unquote. Although not action-packed, this war accomplished a couple of major milestones. One, it helped the U.S. define itself as the protector of democracy. The second milestone this war accomplished is that it outlined the future relationship between the United States and Cuba, as well as the relationships for multiple other countries. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll get into a few rebellions caused by the Spanish-American War and start setting the stage for World War I. Welcome to this week's book recommendation. This week's audiobook is In Order to Live by Yanmi Park. This is a fascinating autobiography about Yanmi Park who defected from North Korea. Park goes into great detail about her time as a child in North Korea, crossing the borders into China, where her and her mother was sold to human traffickers, and traveling through the Gobi Desert to Mongolia where she found asylum from South Korean diplomats. This is truly a captivating story that puts our everyday struggles into perspective. Visit audibletrial.com slash history for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. But don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. The free audiobook applies to any of the thousands of Audible choices. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening, and Semper Fi.